Welcome to Musculoskeletal Clinical Anatomy. This is a podcast for the education of physical medicine and rehabilitation residents. My name is Nicole Kelleher, and I'm a resident physician in the field of physical medicine and rehabilitation. This program is geared primarily toward the education of residents in the PM&R field. However, it may be useful in the education for residents in the fields of internal medicine, family medicine, orthopedics. It may also be useful in the education of medical students or anybody else interested in musculoskeletal clinical anatomy. Welcome back to the program, everyone. Today, we're going to be discussing uh, differential for knee effusions and the associated clinical anatomy. Um, and so just to start with a broad differential for knee effusions, the most common traumatic etiologies of knee effusions include ligamentous injuries, most specifically the ACL, interarticular fractures, patella dislocations, and then meniscus injuries, which tend to be a little bit more indolent. Other causes of knee effusions include inflammatory arthritis, like Lyme disease, gout, pseudogout, um, OA can cause it, Rider syndrome, and then you can get benign and malignant tumors that can cause effusions. The differential for an immediate hemarthrosis includes an ACL tear, a fracture, or a patella dislocation. And one of the things to remember if you ever aspirate a knee and you see something that looks like fat and you think that the effusion might consist of a lipohemarthrosis, this is always a fracture, even if you get a negative x-ray. So you have to investigate that further. That's a fracture until proven. Otherwise, if you aspirate an effused knee and you get back sort of yellow and uh, fluid with blood. Okay, so now we're going to discuss specifically some details of these um, different pathologies. First, we're going to talk about ACL tears, which are a very common cause of an immediate knee effusion. So the ACL originates from the intercondylar aspect of the lateral femoral condyle and attaches to the tibia at the anterior intercondylar area. It also attaches to the anterior horns of the medial meniscus in this area. The ACL functions to limit anterior translation of the tibia on the femur and prevents hyperextension of the knee as well as limits internal rotation when the foot is planted. So just some demographic facts about ACL tears. There are about 200,000 tears in the U.S. and annually and about 100,000 repairs. So this is a very common injury and a very common surgical repair. 70% of these ACL tears are the result of a non-contact etiology versus 30%, which are a result of a contact mechanism. The ACL tears occur with a deceleration while a patient is cutting, pivoting, sidestepping. This is really common in the sports of soccer, football, or basketball. And it's also to remember that for some reason, ACL tears are much more common on a per capita basis in females than males. There's a lot of debate about whether this is related to the Q angle or different biomechanical changes or strength differences between men and women. So oftentimes patients will describe a pop and immediate swelling. If there's chronic instability in the knee as a result of a partial ACL tear, there's a 90% chance of meniscal injury and 70% chance of a chondral injury at 10 years follow-up. 
And this has been demonstrated in the literature. So unrepaired ACLs are at risk for late osteoarthritis. However, there is also research to demonstrate that ACL repairs are also at higher risk of osteoarthritis as well. These ACL deficient knees put more pressure on the posterior meniscus. So a lot of times these are the meniscal structures that are injured. And there's different grades of ACL tears. So the first is a grade one sprain. This is where the ACL is mildly damaged. It's slightly stretched, but it's still able to keep the knee joint pretty stable. And these can be treated conservatively. A grade two is what's also described as a partial tear, and it's a stretching of the ligament um, to the point where it becomes loose and and is no longer providing the normal degree of stability to the knee. And then a grade three sprain or tear is a complete tear. And this is where the ligament has been split in two. The knee joint is very unstable. And these uh, oftentimes require surgical repair. So partial tears of the ACL are rare. Uh, It's usually a complete tear, especially in an athlete. And it's important to remember that about half of ACL tears have concomitant knee pathology, like medial meniscus tears and other uh, ligament tears. So you want to look for other injuries when you see an ACL tear. You want to make sure you're not missing something as well. In terms of the special tests that we use to assess for an ACL tear, we have the anterior drawer test. Uh, This is Most people know what this is. It's where you're putting the knee in 90 degrees of flexion and um, trying to um, translate the tibia anteriorly on the femur. This, this test isn't as sensitive as some of the other ACL tear tests. It puts the hamstrings at a mechanical advantage to resist translation. So um, sometimes you can get um, a false negative, and that's why it's less sensitive. A Lachman's, which is basically the same thing done in 30 degrees of knee flexion, is more sensitive, and this is why a lot of times people will use a Lachman's um, preferentially to an anterior drawer. And then you have the pivot shift test. This is a test commonly done by orthopedic surgeons. There's a very high specificity of this test. In this test, you are internally rotating the tibia with a valgus stress and axial load, and then you're moving the knee from full extension to flexion. Yeah, this test is positive if you get anterior lateral sub- subluxation of the lateral tibial plateau. Oftentimes, this test is done in the OR. It's, it's very painful, so it's a difficult thing to perform in the clinic. Uh, the patients don't like it that much. So in terms of repairs, um, the graphs that are used for ACL repair are commonly patella graphs. And this is where the surgeon takes the middle third of the patella plus a bone plug from the patella and tibia. The advantage of this graft is that it's stronger and there's less risk of graft failure. However, there is an increased risk of patellofemoral syndrome and patella tendonitis when you use this type of graft, the patella graft. The other type of graft is that's commonly used is the hamstring graft. Um, oftentimes, they'll use semitendinosis, plus or minus gracilis for this. There's less risk of patellofemoral pain here. Uh, but the graft itself is not as strong, and so there's a greater risk of graft failure. So those are kind of the advantages and disadvantages of the two most common types of grafts used for ACL. And then if you have a graft failure, reconstruction after a failure is typically performed with a quadriceps tendon allograft. 
And just sort of a difference in terminology, repair is usually a term used to describe a first-time ACL surgery, and then a reconstruction is typically used to describe a graft failure when you're going in and doing a secondary surgery. Um, So then it's also to remember that ACL tears in the elderly or sedentary people, even if they're complete tears, can be treated non-surgically if the person isn't really ambulating and doesn't really need a stable knee, that's always an option. One of the things that we talked about when discussing the medial knee, and if you want to, you can go back and look at this podcast. I believe it's podcast three, the medial knee. We, t- we discuss patella dislocations. And specifically, we talked about the medial patellofemoral ligament. Uh, this is sort of the key ligament in patella dislocations. And this is where surger- surgeons will intervene if there's a lax medial patellofemoral ligament and you get, you're getting um, recurrent patella dislocations. But it's important to remember that that patella dislocation is also on the differential for an acute large knee effusion, oftentimes a hemarthrosis. Um, with these, you also want to look for retinacular injuries, avulsions. Oftentimes you see bony edema where in places where you had bone-on-bone contact from the dislocation. Test for patella instability is if it moves greater than two quadrants, and you're talking about um, lateral movement here. As we discussed in the previous podcast for the medial knee, the patella tends to dislocate laterally just due to the anatomic structures and the way that the patella sits in the patellofemoral joint. So if you get greater than two quadrant translo- uh, two quadrant uh, movement of the patella laterally, then then you that's considered um, positive for patella instability, and you may be more likely to dislocate the patella. And then you can do a patella apprehension test and see if the patient is anxious when you try to move the patella laterally. So the next clinical problem that we're going to discuss related to the anatomy is uh, a knee dislocation. This is a very important thing to have a good grasp of, particularly if you're doing sports coverage. This is one of the things that is oftentimes a surgical emergency, and many times you can get a knee dislocation that spontaneously reduces. So if you aren't paying attention, you don't see a dramatic mechanism of action, or you just don't have the experience to recognize that this could be a knee dislocation, oftentimes you can be tricked when you, if you assess the patient and the knee is spontaneously reduced. So this, this should, is sort of one of the things you don't want to miss. It should always be on your differential when you see, um, if you're doing sports coverage and you see somebody get really clocked out on the field, especially if it's, if it looks like a mechanism of action that could potentially result in a, in a knee dislocation. So there is a distinction between high-velocity and low-velocity knee dislocations. Low-velocity injuries typically have an incidence of vascular injury that's around 5% and nerve injury that's around 20%. High-velocity injuries are, are, these numbers are higher, and this is typically what you see when you're doing sports coverage. And these are the things that you don't want to miss, basically, essentially, with a knee dislocation are these vascular and, neuro- and uh, neurologic injuries. So there's five types of knee dislocations, and they're described in as the tibia relates to the femur. So the anterior knee dislocation constitutes about 31% of the incidence of knee dislocation. This is a hyperextension injury and commonly involves the PCL and the ACL, as well as the MCL and LCL, and you, it's plus minus for a popliteal artery injury, just like all knee dislocations. Um, posterior 
knee dislocations, this is about 25% of incidents of knee dislocations. It commonly involves both cruciate ligaments and the popliteal artery. Lateral knee dislocations, this is about 13% of the incidents. Medial, much less, 3% incidents. And rotary, um, this is about 4% incidents, and it's uh, most commonly a posterior lateral dislocation of the tibia as it relates to the femur. So one thing to remember when you're thinking about a knee dislocation is that if you see an LCL ligament disruption and a perineal nerve injury, so clinically this is going to manifest as foot drop. So clinically, when you're doing your stress testing, you think you have an LCL ligament disruption and foot drop, this is a knee dislocation until proven otherwise. So if you're out on the field and you come across these two injuries together in an athlete that's just been clocked, this is a knee dislocation um, and has to be, you have to send them to the ER. So like I said before, these can spontaneously reduce and it can appear benign, but it's not. Um, in, in the instance where the knee dislocation spontaneously reduces, there's actually a fairly high incidence of popliteal artery thrombosis. Obviously, this needs a vascular workup and needs to be in the emergency room for some vascular imaging. Perineal nerve injury is very common with knee dislocations. 25 to 40% of knee dislocations also involve a perineal nerve injury. 50% of these, of these nerve injuries are permanent. So this can be really functionally debilitating for, some, for an athlete that now has a foot drop that's permanent. These nerve injuries can be due to ischemia in many cases. So again, suspect a vascular injury if you see a perineal nerve injury in an athlete and you need to get an arteriogram and that person needs to be Evalu being evaluated in the ED. So management of the knee dislocation, obviously you're going to call your orthopedic surgeon and you're going to call your vascular surgeon. You're going to get people involved and make sure that you're doing the right management of this, but you can do a closed reduction ASAP and then to address this. And then you can also externally fix the knee dislocation if the, ex if the um, closed reduction is not possible. And then obviously you want to follow up with vascular checks and hopefully you have those specialty services to help you with that. If you're able to reduce the knee in a closed fashion, you want to immobilize the knee in 20 degrees of flexion with a hinged knee brace. And just for all of these, even if you can successfully reduce the knee dislocation, you want to expect that you're going to need some type of vascular repair and fasciotomy for the patient. Um, so again, just getting those um, surgical services involved early, that is the safest way to proceed with these injuries. So a very common cause of knee effusion that's more indolent and kind of waxing and waning and chronic is osteoarthritis. Obviously, I just felt compelled to say a few things about osteoarthritis, even though um, rarely osteoarthritis causes an acute large effusion. It's usually more indolent and waxing and waning and um, chronic. The x-ray views that you want to get to evaluate for osteoarthritis are the AP lateral sunrise and standing flexion views. And standing flexion views are important to get when evaluating osteoarthritis because a lot of times this is when you'll see the narrowing of joint space. A lot of times with a regular AP, you won't see how the joint space will close dynamically. So you really want to get a standing flexion view. Um, in terms of the things to talk about for OA, non-surgical candidates who have end-stage OA, you want to be considering geniculate nerve blocks for these people. 
under, these are done under fluoroscopy. Um, the nerves that supply to the joint is provided um, by several different nerves. So the tibial nerve gives the superior and inferior medial genicular and middle genicular nerves. The common perineal gives off the superior and inferior lateral geniculate and recurrent genicular nerves. And the obturator gives a geniculate branch from the posterior division. So for the geniculate nerve blocks, these are targeted at the superior medial, inferior medial, and superior lateral geniculate nerves. And this is clearly to avoid perineal injuries in the lateral inferior quadrant. So you don't want to block lateral inferior. You want to avoid foot drop for you know extended period of time. And so that concludes our podcast for knee effusions and um, clinical correlations and relevant anatomy. Next week, we're going to be chatting with Dr. Mark Caramore about the hip. I'm really excited about that. He's really fantastic. Hopefully, we'll get that podcast up soon. And I hope that everyone has a good week. Thanks so much for tuning in. This podcast is not meant to represent medical advice It is not meant to establish any standards of care, and it is not meant to be used in any testimony or in any legal capacity. Seek advice from your own physician if you have a medical problem. The podcaster, any guests, or any related entities or institutions are not responsible for the accuracy of this program.